You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. Morning, church. Aren't you so glad that God's opinion of this moment isn't contingent on the weather or uh, our feelings or how tired you feel or whatever your week was like? God's opinion of this moment is that this is a sacred moment because the people of God have gathered together. The word tells us that he inhabits the praises of his people. And um, he just takes pleasure in these moments for the hearts of people to be awakened to things that he wants to do. And uh, I'm going to throw this down here. And uh, what he wants to do in your life. Um, So don't let the weather out there or the way you felt walking in here hinder you from what God wants to do in your life this morning. Amen? You guys all survived the blizzard while you were here. See, you did. Way to go. Way to go. (laughs) Um, I'm from North Dakota, and uh, so that means I heard there was a blizzard, and me and my son went ice fishing. That's what you do in North Dakota. It's like uh, you get out of the house for some reason. Kids up there, you know, they, they think it's like fun to play in blizzards, so... Um, but I guess I found out that in Iowa, fish uh, watched the Weather Channel because uh, they were not biting yesterday. So we survived for like an hour and a half, and then we're like, let's get out of here. This is stupid. So I still have not gotten ice fishing. If anybody understands ice fishing, please enlighten me. I haven't not gotten it yet, but um, this morning we're going to dive into God's Word and continue a series called Ready to Answer. Uh, I believe God wants to equip us in engaging uh, the world around us and engaging the culture around us through conversations in meaningful ways. And that's really the essence of this entire series. Last week, we, we talked about the trustworthiness of the gospel, uh, of the word of God. Is the Bible reliable? Is it trustworthy? You can go back and listen to that message if you missed it. This morning, we're going to tackle the question, what's so wrong with relativism? Relativism is this doctrine of, of um, in the Oxford Dictionary, it calls it a doctrine uh, it's a doctrine that knowledge and truth and uh, values have no absolutes, but instead they're based on context, culture, and history. Um, so what's so wrong with that? What's, what's so wrong with the mantras of our day of live and let live? Just do uh, look deep into your heart, and, um, and from there be led from, from your own heart. What is wrong with those ideas? Aren't those not reasonable, reasonable mindsets to live our lives. What's wrong with those thoughts? We're going to break that down this morning. Um, so are you ready? <laughs> okay. So my purpose this morning is twofold. One is to lift our eyes so that we can recognize the influence of relativism on our hearts. Because this is not something new to humanity. As much as we like to pat ourselves on the back as 21st century humans as being so brilliant, relativism is not new. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at that in scripture, and we'll look at that in history. Um, so it's to, one, one part is to lift the veil from our eyes so that as a church, we can have repentant hearts to ground ourselves in truth and to look to God as our ultimate authority. But then secondly, it is meant to equip us so that confidently we can engage the world around us and, and the next generation in um, pointing them towards God and towards truth. One thing it's not meant to do is to equip you with sound bites or tweetable thoughts to engage in debate. Um, so we're not trying to create arguments. We're trying to create conversations with people that we have relationship with. 
And so um, I'll talk a little bit about why I believe there's been such division in our generation and social media is not helping that huge chasm that's being created right now in our modern society. Um, but relativism has a part to play on that. The church's role, uh, response to relativism has a, has a part to play in this huge division that's happening right now. Um, so let's first uh, lift, lift the veil on relativism and look at some of the voices of relativism. What does relativism sound like in our day? In the 21st century, what does it sound like? Here, here's one example, the, the mantra, live and let live. I mean, it sounds like a pretty reasonable approach. You just worry about yourself. Don't worry about other people. This, this idea that somehow your decisions, actions, and, be, and beliefs can be isolated in a bubble and they don't impact anybody else. Obviously, we'll, we'll unpack the, the, the fallacy there. Um, secondly, is this idea that you can find truth within yourself. You just look hard enough and you'll find truth. You follow your own star. We've got a quote of Beyonce up there um, for all you Beyonce fans. So you just search deep within your heart and, and from that place, you can change the world. You be a better you by, by looking deeper into your heart. Uh, we'll unpack that idea. But that's what it sounds like. You guys have heard, you're familiar with those, those phrases, those mantras, those ideas. You see them in movies. You see them from, from icons and leaders. And they begin to seep into our souls. These are not new. These have been around for like 50, 60 years. These ideas have been uh, proliferating themselves through our culture. A third is this idea of pursuing self-pleasure, self-satisfaction, that the chief end of our existence on this planet is pleasure and satisfaction. And, uh, and, and I'm not all against YOLO. Like it's, it's great to live life to the fullest and, and whatnot, and I'm not against pleasure. But for it to be the chief end of our existence, for it to be the ultimate pursuit of our life, that is a, a road to destruction. It's, a, it's an unsatisfying road that, that never fully gets uh, realized. And so we'll unpack that this morning. But those are the voices of relativism. You're hearing them. You're hearing them in your, in your, in your head right now in all, their different, uh, in all the different directions that they come at us in this day. Those are the voices of relativism. And the reason I want to lift the veil on what the voices of relativism, relativism sound like is because they are influencing the church. They are. And I believe the church in America needs to wake up. Our church, we need to wake up. We need to realize that we need to have a heart of repentance that continually um, is awakened and is diligent and vigilant to realize that these, these voices and these influences, uh, they have a, an effect on our heart and, and we need to posture ourselves continually before the God of truth, our ultimate authority is creator God. Um, so there is, it was a really interesting poll that came out two years ago that illustrated this very thing. Um, this is a, a poll that was found in, um, in a book called Good Faith by David Kinnaman and uh, Gabe Lyons. And David Kinnaman is the, uh, the president of Barna Group. And Gabe Lyons is the founder of uh, a research group called Q. They wrote a book, a really awesome book called Good Faith, about how uh, we as followers of Jesus that are you know, considered irrelevant and extremists, how we can engage the world around us is a fascinating book. I'd totally recommend it. Um, but here's just a portion of some of the research that they, they found as they, they tested the waters to kind of try to see how influenced the church is by society and culture around us. And so they asked a series of questions and they asked uh, the general public and, and people that profess to be Christians. And I know that's a, a wide swath. That's a, a large spectrum of people that profess to be Christians. Um, but they asked them these, these questions, or these, they stated these, these statements, and they asked them to either affirm them or, you know, say they do not agree with them. And so look at the results. It's fascinating to see the very small 
um, divide between the two groups. In the general public, when, when, when um, this statement was stated, it said the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of the general public agreed with that statement. 76% of practicing Christians um, professed that to be in agreement with that statement. There's a problem with that. <laughs> the second statement was the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. The general public was 84%. Um, practicing Christians was 66%. Which there's a difference, but the divide is, is not as much as you would hope and think. And people can believe whatever they want as long as their beliefs don't affect society, don't affect society which is a, like a self-refuting statement, a self-defeating statement. 79% of the general public agreed with that statement. 61% of practicing Christians agreed with that statement. But there's a problem. I'm not saying you necessarily agree with the statements, but as the church, we need to take responsibility and we need to make sure we're grounding ourselves in truth and we're on our, on our knees with the spirit of repentance. So we're gonna look at Romans chapter one this morning and look at, a, look at a, um, an exhortation of a church being uh, immersed in a similar culture to our culture in the city of Rome the church in the city of Rome, Romans chapter 1, 2,000 years ago, because relativism is not new. If it sounds like this morning I'm pessimistic or, or negative or anything like that, it, I'm not at all. I didn't want, wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Um, I'm so hopeful about the future. I see, especially as I hang out with college students, I see something brewing in the hearts of young people that are recognizing the hypocrisy of this, um, this, this message of tolerance that's hypocritical, this over-sensitive generation that, um, that uh, like disallows any sort of meaningful conversation. Young people are seeing this, and they're recognizing, and they're coming to their senses. So I, my heart is, is very hopeful. I'm very hopeful that the church will arise, that we'll be awakened to play a significant role in our society, in our, in our world, to bring change, to be salt and light. And so that's where I'm going to bring this message this morning. I, I believe there's some really um, practical responses we can have uh, to relativism in light of what we know to be true in Jesus Christ. So let's look at this. Uh, Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed. Sorry, but this is verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek because the message of the gospel is the most inclusive message on the planet. It's for everyone. Every human being, all 7.6 billion people on the planet, it's for every single one of them. And it doesn't, the message of hope and the love of God doesn't exclude any ethnicities or race or genders. It's, it's for everybody. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteous, through their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Some of you might be struggling with the about face that Paul seems to be talking about the inclusiveness of God's love through Jesus Christ all the way over to the wrath of God. <laughs> hey, wait a second, I thought God was inclusive and he loved people. Why, why is he so angry? I'd like to distinguish the wrath of God from anger in like a, in a fleshly way. God is not, he's not um, bound to, to bits of rage. He's not unpredictable. The wrath of God is understood as the holiness of God. 
And it's, and it's implied in the fact that he's completely set apart and no one can approach him outside of him making a way. He is completely set apart. And so within that, there are consequences, judgments, both natural and eternal that come with any departure from his holiness. And so the wrath of God is, is required in the holiness of God. Just so, you, just so you understand that. I think it's also important for you to note that the wrath of God is talked about in, in the New Testament because many people look at the Old Testament and they think, oh, God's so angry and why is he so, uh, you know, judging everybody and so, so wrathful? And then the New Testament, it's Jesus hanging out with kids and healing everybody and he's so loving. Why, why is there the disconnect? But the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's cohesive. It's, it's one beautiful uh, uh, harmonious story of, of who God is. And part of it is his holiness, the fact that he's completely set apart. And part of it is his love. And it actually, it actually points to a greater love when you think of the holiness, because it shows the huge divide that Jesus had to bridge. So I'm not trying to preach a different message, but uh, just wanted to distinguish all those things because there's so much in here. Uh, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal gods for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. 2,000 years ago, uh, an apt description of our modern age. But before you um, pat yourself on the back for being so awesome and righteous, please take note that in the, very f- the, the verses that follow in, in the beginning of Romans chapter two, Paul makes it very clear that he's talking first and foremost to the church. And so that's why this morning, the wake-up call is for us to open our eyes and to realize that we are all in need of, desperately in need of Jesus, that we, we all would choose this path of relativism. And there's a reason that our hearts, if you discover your own star, it actually leads you towards destruction. These ideas of relativism lead us towards a path to chaos and destruction. And so first we look and we take care of our own house. And we say, God, we depend on you. You are our authority. We want your truth over our lives. So let's just break down a few of these passages here in Romans chapter one and see how they point to the ideas ideologies, philosophies of relativism. Verse 22, it says they were claiming to be wise, but, found, but became fools. 
found to be foolish. Doesn't that sound so much like our age in which we, we think we were so highly evolved, we're so brilliant, that we've arrived at these new philosophies that sound so awesome, they, they sound uh, so reasonable. But in that, we become like fools. Because in reality, these, these modern ideas and ideologies are no different than the departures that were taken at the very beginning in the garden. In the garden, as the serpent came to Adam and Eve and, and pointed out the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, if you eat of that, that tree, well, what will happen? You will become like God. This idea that we can take that authority, that supreme authority of our lives and somehow supplant it with ourselves, that we become our own gods, that was the temptation from the very beginning. And in that moment, it seemed so alluring. It sounds so wise. You're like, wow, thank you, serpent. That's very, it sounds very uh, like a great idea. And, uh, and today we do the same thing in the 21st century. We can pat ourselves on the back thinking that it sounds so brilliant, sounds so wise. And it's continued to follow humanity throughout the ages. Interestingly enough, 100 years before Paul wrote this, a popular philosopher by the name of Lucretius, he wrote a poem called The Nature of Things. And he essentially says this, that pleasure is the ultimate purpose of life. We exist to enjoy life, nothing more, nothing less. Good living all the time. Does that not sound like the 21st century? That, that, that mantra, that idea, those ideologies have been following humanity from the very beginning. And so when Paul is calling it out here in Romans chapter one, again, he's calling us back to truth. He's calling the church back to creator God, the, the order and the lawmaker of the universe. In verse 25 this is what happens. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they began to worship and serve the creature, the, the created ones, rather than the creator. And that's what happens in this realm of relativism. We supplant the creator with the created one, the, the created beings. They become gods. They become the ultimate uh, authority, worshiping things instead of the creator. In verse 29 that long list, it almost seems like an exhaustive list, but I believe it's, it's powerful as he describes the, the, the human heart and if left to its own devices, what takes place. And it's that long list, the description of the destruction uh, that is our own demise, it's our own judgment. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God. It's this, this path of destruction that relativism leads us to. So to put it in even clearer terms, I wanna, I wanna give you four reasons relativism is a dead end. I believe these are found right here in Romans chapter one. It's because our choices really do matter is the first reason. Four reasons relativism is a dead end and the first is because our choices really matter. You don't have to walk uh, any further than outside these front doors to realize that your choices matter. This idea of live and let live, that somehow our choices, actions, and beliefs can exist in an isolated bubble just is not true. Just poke your neighbor, annoy them for a moment, and you can realize your choices have consequences. What if I choose as my ultimate path for truth and self-discovery is to be a pathological liar? That's my, like, that is my ultimate self-discovery and greatest passion in life. That is going to have real, measurable, marked 
uh, repercussions and implications in my life. People are not going to like to hang out with me. My wife is going to be driven crazy by my decision for uh, my own pursuits of pleasure. And you could choose any of these. I mean, greed or gluttony. If that became my ultimate pursuit in life, my ultimate pleasure and satisfaction was greed and gluttony, there would be a ripple effect. So you don't have to search very far for you to, to dismantle that idea that choices matter. Choices have a consequence. And there's a ripple effect every time you choose uh, to do something, to, to believe something, to act out in something. Choices really matter. You guys tracking with me? Okay. Second is this, because the path of self-fulfillment never satisfies. That appetite is, is never fully quenched. It's never fully satisfied. It's like we almost digress back to our toddler years. You know, you give a kid a piece of candy, they want more candy. They discover the candy jar, they, they eat themselves sick, right? That's what happens when we, when we venture down this path of uh, the chief end of our existence being pleasure is it's never enough. So God is not anti-pleasure. He created pleasure. But as just, uh, just one aspect of our humanity and one uh, aspect of our experience on the earth, it's not meant to be the chief end of our existence. We have a growing appetite that's never fulfilled. And we need to, we need to realize that. Third is this, because words become meaningless. In this world where um, truth and values and um, uh, everything, you know, existence is based on culture, context, and history, we begin to quickly talk over each other. All words uh, lose any sort of substance, any measurable, definable substance to them. And I believe that's what's happening now in our modern age. It's why everyone's shouting over each other because we're, we're saying similar words, but they don't mean the same thing because there's no ultimate authority that's giving us any sort of definition, measurable de- definition. And I believe until we figure that out, until, we, um, until as a society we can come to grips with that, that there has to be some sort of absolute that, that uh, defines the world. And that's why as you look across the, the globe, Judeo-Christian uh, societies are the most uh, healthy in terms of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of economy. Because there is some sort of absolute groundwork, foundation for actually um, expressing value and definition. Um, for is this, because dialogue about value becomes impossible, and I was starting to uh, get into that a little bit. Because needed for any conversation about value or rights, there has to be some outside assigner of that value. So to remove God from his throne, to prop myself up as God, who is to say that my, my life is, more, is not more valuable than your life? And so for me, I want to snuff your life out. For me, that's my, my chief end of, of finding pleasure in this world. And no one can question me on it because that is the path of relativism. And so then any dialogue about value becomes impossible. If I feel like I'm doing you a service by enslaving you, I'm actually doing the world good by doing these things. And, and there's many examples of that throughout history of, of that twisted thinking. But we need to then apply it to our own lives. That's why we need an ultimate authority in our lives. I don't want to be the authority dictator over my own life. It can't, my, my heart cannot be trusted. 
And that's why even in the, the modern uh, conversations about human rights, any conversation about human rights cannot be discussed. There cannot be discourse and dialogue about those things without someone that gives those uh, innate human rights, those that, that distinguishes a life as valuable. And so we have to then bring in this idea of a creator God, this one who says all life is valuable. Okay, so I think you're starting to, to realize the dead end and the, the destruction that comes from this, this, this idea. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, let's three, nod your heads, you say amen. Okay, <laughs> or else I'll just keep going. There are other reasons, but th- those are just some of the explicit ones I felt like from Romans uh, chapter one that were apparent um, as he quickly leads to the, the destruction that comes from human hearts having their way. So then how can we live? How can we respond? What hope is there? What is the role of the church in this? Do we need to legislate morality? What, what do we do? No, I'm not proposing a theocracy this morning or even legislating morality. I think there can be a role of the government, but um, more than anything, I believe there's a role the church needs to play to be salt and light in this world. And so I'm gonna key in on a word that Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 20, where he says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal uh, power and divine nature have been clearly perceived and since the, ever since the creation of the world. I want to key in on that word perceived. And I want you to open your eyes to the opportunities all around us to point people towards truth, to point people away from the, the deceptions, the lies of relativism towards truth. And I believe in, I believe in you. I believe in the, that God places you in spheres of influence, into relationships, into conversations. And, and you're going to have opportunities to simply perceive the opportunities that God has uh, to point people towards truth. One is this, perceive order all around us. You don't have to look at, uh, you know, any further than the, the trees outside to realize that there is a designer, a, an order, a grand lawmaker in the universe. And the, law, the laws of the universe, these, these very uh, governing laws that we, we discover through science, they point to the idea of a lawmaker, one who has defined order. And that's why it's great for us in our minds logically to um, dismantle, or I guess more it's the disconnect between science and relativism. Many people that espouse scientism also uh, espouse a, uh, relativism, uh, a relativistic ethic or morality. And the two are incompatible. <laughs> if everything is, is relative, then, then how can things be measurable and concrete and testable and repeatable? The whole basis for science is, is based on a universe that has order, that has a predictability to it, that God set in motion. So science and relativism are, are incompatible. I mean, any of the applied sciences, you could think of a hundred different scenarios, but I'll just steal from Rabbi Zacharias since he's brilliant. But he, he says, just think of um, you know, basing your, or placing your faith in a pilot who has a relativistic worldview. And then, you know, he, he, got, he gets about... 10,000 feet up in the air. And he's like, you know, I, I felt in my heart back there that I shouldn't fuel up. So uh, we're going to see how far we make it. I, I feel like it's going to be really great. And, you know, I searched within my, my own North Star. I've, I discovered in my heart. And although I think our destination's this way, for me, it's over here. I mean, can you, there would be no, we would not survive as human beings in a world based on relativistic ideas. And any of the applied science, you wouldn't want to 
uh, trust yourself to a doctor holding relativistic views. Because things have meaning. They have definition. There's a purpose and a concrete substance to things that's measurable. Words have meaning. Two plus two is not seven. The very fabric and language of the universe is math because it's measurable and concrete and, and knowable. So no, ma- no matter how hard you try to convince me that two plus two is seven, it's always four. No matter how, what angle you look at it, it's always four. And it's so fascinating, the more and more we discover, the more meaning and purpose that's discovered. You know, in the 1950s, when they, they discovered the structure of the, the double helix um, DNA structure, you know, all the, the, just the, the universe that was opened through that, that information is written over your life, that you have a story written over your life. And if there's information in a place, that means someone had to put it there. It doesn't just arrive randomly through these random acts. No matter, you know, no matter the number of iterations of prob- probabilities, it will never arrive. So imagine going to the planet Mars and you see as you get there, there's a, there's a nice sign that says, welcome to Mars. Would you, in a billion, quadrillion years, ever imagine that that just happened to be there by chance, randomly? It's a coherent, knowable transfer of information. That means that, means that someone had to put it there. And so it is, as you peer into the, the human heart, as we, as we peer into these realms of science, information is, is there at the subatomic level, the genetic level, the molecular level. There's information there that points to order. And that's why I believe young people are coming alive to the, the, the fallacies and the dead-endness of, uh, of relativism is because, because they're realizing the illogical, uh, the, the, how it's illogical. It just, it's not uh, compatible with the rest of the world. So we just point people to that. We point people to order. And people, I, I feel like there's a humility in people, to, in most people, that they want to really know. It's just we've been so influenced uh, by these messages of relativism for 50 years uh, that many unknowingly have w- walked down this path. So as we get into conversations, we point people towards, towards, towards these ideas and they, they come alive. So second is this, perceive the fruit of righteousness. I believe God has a best way for human flourishing. He has a best way that he designed it. He's creator God and he created a way for us to flourish on the earth. And Jesus said that he came to bring life and life more abundant. He knows how you thrive as a human being, created in his image. And I believe the church in a fresh way needs to not only know how to distinguish the fruits of unrighteousness, which are, have been really easy for the church to uh, recognize, but instead of us always just spending all of our time harping on the fruit of unrighteousness, what if we learned how to, to celebrate and affirm and hone in on the fruit of righteousness? that point people towards God. And they say, I want what you have. I want the godly marriage that you have. I want this conviction and consistency in your life to see every person have value. And they, they look at that and they're like, wow, I want that. I mean, you just look at one, one look at the, the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, those are the very things that relativism espouses that it's in pursuit of. And yet they are found right here in Christianity in relationship with Holy Spirit through Jesus. 
And you and I can experience that every single day. So as, as the world, they see love in you. That's different than the flaky, hypocritical love of the world. They see there's a consistency to it. It almost seems divine. The peace that you carry. I've never, I've never noticed that before. I mean, I've never, I've never seen that anywhere else. This peace to be unshakable in the midst of, of tragedy or, uh, or battles. And the list can go on and on. We perceive the fruit of righteousness and we believe that God can allow those fruit to be manifest in our life in a fresh way as the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking about a theocracy. I have personal views on that and the role of government uh, in the church. I'm talking about the church awakening to our role to demonstrate the fruit of life in godly relationships, sacrificial love and faithfulness. And the world will take notice. As you even see now what's happening in the Middle East, the many, many of the stirrings that are happening there, they're, they're realizing you know, Israel is like a beacon of hope in the Middle East. You know, one of the fastest growing um, churches right now is the Iranian church. By the tens of thousands, they're encountering Christ because they're seeing that in the realm of uh, Islam as they've those leaders have propped themselves up as the ultimate authority. They've you know, taken God off the throne and they've placed themselves there in that authority as ultimate dictators. They're realizing Israel must have something. There's a fruit there in terms of freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of economy that we have never experienced that we dream of. And so it's that fruit of righteousness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, the great prophet and pastor during the Second World War, this is what he said, from prison, take note, from prison, He said, the church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. And that's a call upon us as a church to demonstrate the fruit of righteousness to a world that can perceive it. Paul said that. We all perceive perceive these these, uh, attributes, these divine attributes uh, in the world around us and in nature. Third is this, perceive freedom through truth. This ultimate pursuit that relativism is, um, is propping up of freedom is not found there in, in relativism. Instead, it's found in Jesus. It actually comes through the, the, the paradoxical idea in the kingdom of laying down our lives for Christ. It's in that place that we actually find freedom. Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. That Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. So there's a deception and relativism that we can call out and we can point people towards Jesus, towards true freedom. That we have to have a basis of truth in order to really experience freedom. Otherwise, our freedom is built on nothing. Relativism leads to a bondage of cycle, or sorry, a bondage cycle of never being satisfied. And so in relativism, it's a pursuit of freedom and it actually leads to an enslavement we have truth that actually can set people free to experience the very things their heart and their soul long for. So I know some people, they just struggle with the idea of, uh, I think we all do. There's a rebellious aspect of all of our hearts as we read about in Romans 1. And we're all kind of like little kids in relationship to their parents. And you know, when parents set rules in their house, like um, no singing at the table or... Everyone takes their dishes and deals with them themselves. Um, they can kind of seem arbitrary and they can kind of seem like nitpicky. And I feel like as humans, we, we look at God and his, his order for 
human flourishing and we're like, these are arbitrary rules. Like these just seem so silly, some of them. And we can, we can almost begin to tell ourselves the story that God is detached from the order of morality that he set in motion in the universe. But that's what's, that, 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 that is part of the beauty of the gospel is that God is not distant from this order of morality, but instead he inserted himself into it and he showed that it's possible for someone, someone to live perfectly in the midst of that moral order and he did it in the person of Jesus Christ. And then not only that, but then he took upon himself the full consequences of those immoral choices that we all make. So there's, 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 no, there's no space at all for the lie that God is distant from the moral order that he set in motion in the universe. Instead, in the person of Jesus Christ, he inserted himself right smack dab in the center of it all, and he gave us a way to experience the life ourselves, to actually escape the judgment that we're all due. He said, I'm gonna demonstrate a better way of living, which isn't for self-fulfillment, but instead it's a life of laying down our lives for others, serving others, living actual love, And the world needs to see that for themselves. They need to see that through the church of Jesus Christ. Am I right? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward. And can you guys play that song uh, here and now? Changing it up on you. Um, I believe that we need to respond to the Lord this morning. I believe that some in this place, we've, been, we've uh, been influenced by relativism in a way that we just need to take a moment to say, God, I repent. I, I turn from this idea that somehow I can be the highest authority in my life. And we'll just take a moment to respond to God. We'll do that as a church as well. And then I'm gonna really commission us to be salt and light in this world. I believe God's gonna bless you with, with conversations and relationships, with peers, with coworkers, with, with young people, with people that look to you, as an example, and you're gonna have the opportunity to, with grace and uh, with a conviction, have these conversations with people and point them towards truth. Would you all stand to your feet? Let's just take a moment right now to respond to truth. Because of media, because of culture, I believe we've all been subtly kind of wooed by some of these uh, mantras of relativism. So let's just take a moment right now to repent of uh, falling prey to any of those deceptive lies. Lord, right now, we just, we turn to truth. We turn to the reality that you are the ultimate supreme authority in the universe. And you set in motion a way of living, of interacting with each other, of uh, thriving on the earth. And we submit ourselves to that and all of its ramifications, of all of its implications. We submit ourselves to you as the ultimate authority in our lives. As a church, God, I pray you'd open our eyes, awaken us in a fresh way to recognize that we are called to be set apart. We're called to be different. The Lord, you've placed within the gospel such a compelling message of hope for the world that it's the most inclusive message in the world. Everybody needs to know, Lord, every tribe, nation, tongue, so God, allow those things to burn in our hearts again in a fresh way for us to turn from the deceptive lies of relativism right now in the name of Jesus. Just take 30 seconds right now and respond to the Lord in your own way.
secondly, I believe God wants to awaken us to be the salt and light, to recognize the opportunities around us. And so God, I just, I commission this church, every single person who came here this morning, Lord, you're, you're commissioning them to, to be influencers. You've placed them in spheres uh, of impact that I'm not in. And we, we all have different uh, roles to play in this city. And I just pray that you'd open our eyes to see the opportunities. And we can point people to truth. We can point people to the order of the universe. God, I pray, and the, the, the order that's inherent in the world around us. God, I pray that we can, we can point people to the fruit of righteousness and to a better way of living. And we can, we can ultimately um, point people towards freedom through truth. I pray that in your mighty name, Jesus. Commission a church in a fresh way to engage the world around us with the truth of the gospel. In your mighty name, amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org.